So Titus 2, uh, we read Titus 2 last week. We're reading again this week because that's uh, where we're continuing. This is God's holy and infallible word. Um, Titus 2, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. That's God's word for us this morning. So in this Building the Household of Faith sermon series, uh, we can see in Titus 2 a kind of blueprint for the church. God's Word gives us the building instructions for our lives and for the church, and we get some wonderful details here, and and so uh, what we were doing last week and now this week is an unfolding, opening up that blueprint, as it were, studying it carefully, and we saw first that sound teaching is essential to the church's foundation. Paul begins in verse 1, you must teach. And he ends in verse 15. These are the things you should teach. And Paul talks about sound doctrine often in his letters. And he talks about guarding against false teaching too. And just before our verses, he spent some time doing that. But teaching for the church, it's always about living also. And that's really the strong emphasis in all of Titus 2. We read, teach the older men, first of all, such and such, and then teach everybody else too. Teach them what? Well, most of what Paul says here is about living for Jesus in the church. A friend uh, shared an article with me this past week, and it was about uh, what, what seems to be sort of a common topic in the Christian world, why are millennials leaving the church? That's been discussed a lot recently. The millennial generation, it's considered by most people to be uh, those born between 1980 and about 2000. So that's pretty much anyone 
16, 17 years old on up to 36, 37 years old. I, you know, I know many strong Christians in this age range, including a lot of you, but statistics show that a larger percentage of this population is uncommitted to the church than pretty much any previous generation. You know, the, just before the millennials, my generation get the Gen Xers, and then many less millennials are in the traditional church compared to the boomer generation before that and the builder even before that. In this particular article, people have all sorts of you know, thoughts about this. Why is this? This article suggests that uh, this leaving of the traditional church doesn't necessarily have to do with music style or theology or church ministry or programs or whether or not the church uses technology. But this author says and suspects it has to do with more what the millennial generation has observed in terms of the lifestyle of people who are Christians. And it suggests that many millennials as they grew up, saw adults failing to live out their faith. Growing up, they saw adults talking a good talk on Sunday mornings, but then failing to live out their faith during the week in terms of kingdom values in every area of their life. And this article claims that's made a whole generation feel the church is filled with hypocrites and driven them away. So we could discuss that thought, um, how big a factor that really is, uh, would be very hard to determine, it seems to me. But what, what the article's talking about, the importance of God's people's beliefs and their lives being in sync is absolutely critical, clearly, because God shows us that's his design. We want our faith in life to match up. We want that for ourselves. Sound knowledge and sound living, that sound teaching, those are two essential pillars to the foundation of the church and all of us as God's people. We saw secondly, as we studied the blueprint of Titus 2, that the church is constructed in community. And so we don't isolate ourselves from worship from fellowship. Satan uses isolation to erode our faith. God uses community, the fellowship of the saints, uh, to build up our lives and to build up the church. Paul talks about young and old, men and women. Every single person is important in building up the church, not just the leadership where um, Paul talks about in chapter 1. And Paul starts with the older men. I said this last week too, I think, because I think they're called to lead the way in the church. And what he says about the older men is in contrast to what the world shows us about older men so often. You know, just think of older men in your typical sitcom on TV. They're portrayed as curmudgeons certainly not worthy of respect, sort of the the opposite of what Paul calls us to. 
Paul says it's different for believers. It's different in the church. Older men with their wisdom and experience lead the way in Christian living, lead the way in faith, in love, in endurance. And I'm so thankful for all the ways I see that at faith. With the older women and the younger women, Paul's giving us a picture of a mentoring relationship. So women with life experience, you are called to look for opportunities to train, to teach, to share with younger women. Younger women, you're called to be open to learning from women who are more experienced in faith and life. We don't have to live the Christian life alone. We have each other. And as you think about this, even if you don't have family members, you know, that's really ideal in God's design as he works through the generations. If, if we have family members who are strong believers who can mentor us in the faith, uh, but even if you don't have that in your life, we have a family. We have a family. We, we always will. It's each one of us in the church. It's a beautiful, it's a powerful thing. There's a focus here on younger women in the home. And I think the Bible's telling younger women that if God calls them to be a wife or a mother, well, then their primary responsibility is there. And then it seems to me, I think most of us would agree, there can be secondary responsibilities in life too. Uh, whether it's Uh, being called to gain an income, helping out at school or in the church, after those primary responsibilities are taken care of. And really, if you think about it, for a man too, if, if, if you have a wife, if you have children, well, your first responsibility is to care for them as well, of course. Paul says here that a woman is subject to her husband, And that's a big topic, potentially, for discussion. In short, what that is is simply the biblical blueprint for a marriage. Ephesians 5 gives uh, the most detailed description of, of God's design for marriage in the Bible. And it tells us that the husband is called to lead the way spiritually in marriage. Husband is called to lead the way in marriage. The context in Ephesians 5 is that all Christians are called to respect and honor one another. And in a special way, we're called to respect and honor the authorities in our life. And in the marriage relationship, the Bible talks about the husband as the head of the marriage. The world tends not to like this. And then they twist what they read in the Bible to mean that, well, this is what Christians believe. In Christian homes, uh, the wife is a doormat. The husband is a dictator. But that's a twisting of headship. God's design doesn't give anyone permission to be unfair or selfish or abusive. It's the very opposite of that. The head of the home is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Being subject does not involve a suppression of anything. Wives, just like husbands, should be encouraged to fully express and develop their gifts, talents, 
and so on. God's blueprint shows something that uh, the world doesn't seem to like these days, and that's that the role of husband and wife is not identical. Ephesians 5 shows the sacrificial love of the husband and emphasizes the respect and honor of the wife. It's not to say there's love and respect for both, but especially the husband is called to that love and the respect of life. And that's the partnership of marriage. That's what it looks like. And that's worth reminding ourselves when in the world the tendency is to make gender roles more identical. And I think that's especially why the Bible's blueprint for marriage grates against so many people in our society. But different roles doesn't mean less important or less honorable. Husbands and wives' roles are different according to the Bible's blueprint, even while they are partners and equal in terms of being image bearers of God. In this chapter about living, I mentioned this last week in particular, I want to say something more about it. It's worth noticing how much self-control is mentioned for all people in the church. In the past, when I've looked at this chapter, um, it, it always struck me, maybe it struck you too, it says, Encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And that is a special emphasis for young men. But it's for every single group in this chapter, self-control is mentioned. I wonder if, I think that's something that we must all struggle with. Not just young men, older men, older women, younger women, boys and girls. It must be something we all struggle with. And the thought I had is, I wonder if God emphasizes self-control. Because if you think about your life, if you think about the world, if you think about people around you, isn't our tendency to want to control others? Our tendency, human tendency, is to want to control other people. With our actions, our words, we want it our way in our marriage. We want our thoughts known and expressed in politics. We want our opinions heard in the church. Us having control over others, though, I think is the world's way. The world is all about trying to control other people, to control what other people think. God's way is flipped. It's the other way around. We're not called to control others. We're called to control ourselves. See, self-control. That's how you're going to have influence and impact in the world and in your families, as parents, as grandparents, through self-control. People who have a command of themselves with the Holy Spirit in them, that's how you can make a difference. In verse 11, Paul talks about the grace of God that brings salvation to all men. And that's the context of this slaves and masters stuff in verses 9 and 10. I feel like it's always hard for us to know what to do with this slavery when it comes up in the New Testament. Slavery is an evil institution. Why isn't Paul saying so? 
It's helpful always to remember a couple of things when the Bible talks about slavery in the New Testament. One is to be aware that slavery then was different from the American experience of slavery that we read about in history. In the Roman Empire, slavery was not race-based. Slaves were almost sometimes more like servants in some cases. Sometimes people even voluntarily went into slavery for a time to pay off debts. And those who were slaves back then, they could include household servants, teachers, people working in government. And Pastor Matthew put it this way a little while back, that um, in those days, in some ways, more the analogy is to an employee today. And they talked about slaves then. So that's something to keep in mind. But also, secondly, when we hear about slavery, we have to keep in mind that the trajectory of God's grace in Christ and the impact it would have on society would be to abolish slavery of all kinds, even though that wouldn't have been realistic in the very pagan Roman Empire yet. And that, the evil of slavery existed hundreds of years after the coming of the gospel. Well, that's an example of God's grace and truth just flat out not being applied properly to life and to society. The point here in bringing up slaves and masters, after all these other people, and to talk about salvation for all men is this, as someone put it. Scripture's telling us, regardless of station or situation in life, no one is excluded from the blessings and the responsibilities of the community of faith. So, people under someone else's authority, people who are in authority too, and so then truly, the salvation that verse 11 talks about is for all people, meaning God's message is extended to people of all ages, men and women, rich and poor, whatever station you're at in life. The church is constructed stone by stone by people who have accepted Christ living in community together. Paul finally highlights grace in verse 11 and following. We read, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. And we can say a couple things about this grace. First, God's grace holds the church together. Thinking of that building imagery and building up the church. God's grace is our glue. It's our mortar. Should be a little stronger for building construction than glue, right? It's the mortar that keeps the bricks and stones together as the building is constructed. God's grace in Jesus saves us. It brings us into the household of faith. And that's a really good reminder after all this talk about how our lives should look because we don't always live the way of grace and we know it. We fall short. It grieves us. But then we can be reminded and comforted that the same grace that saved us will lead us all the way home to glory. We're reminded we're saved not by what we've done, 
or left undone in our life. And we look back, and there are a lot of mistakes there. There will be more this week, but we're saved because of God's love, because of what Christ accomplished, as Paul goes on to tell us about. Out of sheer grace, God applied his finished work to all who believe. Verse 11, it's his grace that appeared. And really, the the original word is more his grace swooped in to rescue us. It's, It's the language of a hero flying into the rescue. And verse 14, Jesus swooped into this world to sacrifice himself, to redeem us, and his grace purifies us, verse 12. It teaches us how to live in this present age saying no to what is not good for us, saying yes to what is. In terms of growing and living in grace like we want to, there's something that that was shared with me recently. Actually, Sarah and I were talking about it. I forget where it came from originally. Maybe it came from her originally. I don't want to not give her credit. But I think it's helpful. Whatever muscles we exercise will be the ones that grow stronger. But if we don't exercise our muscles, they will shrink. They'll atrophy. I think that's the technical term. Your muscles can atrophy. My, my two older girls, I think one's helping out with Children's Church, Olivia's here, they play basketball. They've been learning the fundamentals, and something that's really been emphasized to them is the value of being able to use your less dominant hand. And so if you're right-handed, like they are and like I am, your left hand, your left arm, when you're on the left side of that basket, it's very valuable to be able to use that. It's better. I play, as you maybe have gathered over the years, a little basketball. Not these days, hopefully... When chemo's done, I'll get back to it. But I never learned the fundamentals at a young age. I never played on a team ever. I never learned to use my left hand. So even now, if I try to do a layup with my left hand on the left side of the basket, it's just, it's kind of sad. It's really bad. My left arm muscles have never been developed in that way. And I suppose they could be yet, um, but let's not talk about that. That would take some real exercise and developing. But Hannah and Olivia, it's no problem. They're strong there because they've been using those muscles for years already. We're called to use our spiritual muscles too. And when we do, they get stronger, just like our physical muscles. If you say, practice self-control, you know what? That spiritual muscle is going to get stronger And you know what? It's going to be easier for you to remain patient when you get impatient. It's going to be easier for you to bite your tongue when you want to say something you shouldn't. It's going to be easier for you not to lose it. The more we say no to worldly passions, the more we'll be able to keep saying no because those muscles are getting stronger. The more we put ourselves out there in terms of being in community, relating to one another, as this chapter talks about, even if we're a little shy, the better we'll get at it. But, you know, if a believer, if you stay home from worship, if, you, uh, if you're able, but you 
stop being in opportunities uh, to be in community with God's people, those community muscles, those Christian community muscles, they're going to get weak and flabby, and, and you'll less and less be able to get off uh, your behind and get out there to be a blessing to others and to be blessed by others like we know God wants us to do. And so because of God's grace, there's hope. With his help, we really can live for Jesus more and more. God's grace that's, that's so key to the building and holding together of the divine blueprint. Also, there's one more thought this morning, one final thought. It's about grace. Grace also makes the church radiate. The church is the beacon of light for the world. It's not only about the right foundation being built up together in community and being held together by grace. It's about sharing the good news. The end of verse 10 says something interesting. It's that our lives will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Our lives will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And by God's grace, that can happen, and it brings to mind Psalm 50, verse 2. It says in Psalm 50, verse 2, From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. And Zion is a reference to the church. Can you believe what that's saying? That's how awesome the church is. We would never dare make a claim like that. But God says it himself in the Bible. From the church, God shines forth. That's his design. And and so the church, by grace, can make God attractive. We can point others to God. And this is an additional important dimension to God's design for building the church. It's about those God has already called, but there's also an outward mission focus of serving, of telling the good news, of of praying for and bringing in new members and new believers. Verse 13 mentions our blessed hope, and that's Jesus' return someday. The Bible talks about heaven as the new Jerusalem. And so the church, as we move forward toward that day, becomes a beautiful city, a beautiful edifice constructed for God's glory until in glory it's perfected. And and so by grace, the church radiates outward. And so what a blueprint, what a plan for us to unfold and study and admire, but also to follow through on. And each one of us has responsibility here. What do you need to most focus on today as we've looked at Titus 2? That that foundation in your life of sound teaching, knowing the faith more, learning to live it out better. Uh, Does your focus need to be on, on community 
taking next steps to put yourself out there more, reaching out more to others in care, being receptive to receiving their care, asking for prayer needs, or, or in that area of grace, is that where you can grow? Maybe for someone here, it's that you receive God's grace in Jesus for the first time in your life. If you've never called out to him in your need and said, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need you, Jesus. Or is it maybe in terms of exercising muscles that are weak, spiritually speaking, and and doing so, letting your light shine more? My prayer is that God would bless us as we continue to build God's household here. Let's continue together to be careful that we follow God's design And to put in the language of our mission statement, may we and all who come here experience God's word as we are very serious about that solid teaching foundation. May we also express God's love as we live the life of love in community to one another and beyond. And may we be equipped to serve here in the church and everywhere by the grace of God, which holds us together and causes miraculously God himself to shine forth from the church for all to see. And we hope and we pray for many to come to know him in their lives. Amen.